So I, I have to think ahead about my preaching well in advance. In fact, every year I have this season of, of July where I'm kind of planning my preaching for the entire next year. And so I've got to break down series and I've got to pick dates. And, and wouldn't you know that even though I, I didn't know that February 6th, what was going to be happening in our church family, that I just so happened, maybe under some guidance of the Holy Spirit, to choose for this day for us to focus on the story of Jesus calling Matthew to follow him as the good shepherd. And so I'm thrilled that this morning, the text that we're going to be looking at, we're we're going to look at, at two different stories, both the first moment that Matthew is called by Jesus, and then just a couple of chapters later, there's this theme that weaves these stories together. And It's a theme that I think is at the heart of Matthew's understanding of what Jesus brings into our lives and what he wants to bring into our world through us. Now, the story of Matthew being called, it shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But as you might guess, when Matthew tells his own version of the story, There's a few extra details that don't strike Mark or Luke as as carrying the same level of of importance as they did for Matthew. And you know, he's not sitting down and writing his own story, the, the place where he encounters Jesus. He's not writing it five minutes after it happens. He's looking back after years of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and he's He's asking himself what all was happening there and what did it mean and where does he want to to take his camera and focus in in the most clear way possible? How does he help draw our attention to the place that he thinks we really need to see? If we're going to understand what it means for Jesus to call not just Matthew, but to call all of us, what's at the heart of that call? Now, the first thing I want to say to you is, it is obvious throughout Matthew's gospel, but especially uh, in Matthew chapter 9, that that Jesus invites people into his his life that other religious people are, are just too afraid to invite into their own lives. That Jesus isn't worked up about the, the kinds of friends he has, the kind of follower, follower he, that, that he's attracting, even if other rabbis, other teachers might look at those people who are following and think they're so far away from being able to follow all the, the laws and the rules that are caught up in, in what it means to, to have a religious commitment and what it means to be a shining example of, of God's person. They look at Jesus's followers, his disciples, and they wonder, what is it that's drawing Jesus to them? What is it that's drawing them to Jesus? Jesus, it seems, isn't nearly as worried about how well people are able to practice religious rights, to follow religious regulations, as he is wanting to help them have a a real, authentic relationship with God that changes them, that saves them. Jesus isn't interested in reaching all the people that all the other rabbis can easily reach. Jesus wants to reach those nobody else is even thinking about. Nobody else is open to to finding new ways to reach. Jesus has come for them. 
And it's why we're reading the words of a gospel 2,000 years later of a tax collector, of someone who wasn't the right kind of person when it, when it came to, okay, who is it that you're going to hold up as an example of someone who in ancient Israel, first century Judaism, what, what kind of person do you want to emulate? What kind of person do you want to be just like? You don't start with Matthew, and here he is. He's not just in the story. He's telling it. And it's all because of Jesus. And so I want us to read together Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. I wish he would just say, he saw me. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. That's all you need to know to know that the the people around him, his neighbors, they despise him. Because not only does he take money from them, he takes any amount of money he wants to take from them, He gets to enrich himself off of their money, and none of them have enough. At least they don't feel like they do. And he's not just doing all of that for himself. He's doing it in the name of Rome. He's doing it in the name of the occupying military force that's controlling all of their lives and oppressing them. He's not just someone they don't want to be around. He's a traitor. And yet Jesus comes walking along and says to him, I want you, right, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, in the same way that Matthew doesn't say, he saw me, he makes the the phrases that describe him getting up from that table and walking away from it. It's way too short and brief and simple. Because for Matthew to get up from that table and join Jesus... That's the moment that the rest of his life, he's going to look back and realize that's the moment that Jesus saved him. And I don't know all the thoughts and the fears and the things that that had to be going on inside of Matthew's heart and soul. But what I do know is that he overcame whatever doubts or fears he had and he followed as Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the wrong kind of people, right, with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out that the people that he, he wants to, to be there for, it's, it's the people who realize that they have a, an old way of life that they need to, to walk away from not just so they can have new life, but true life. And that's exactly what's going on for Matthew here. Matthew and I think a bunch of his friends. They, they look at Jesus and they're able to walk away from that old way of life because they're convinced. They believe with everything they have inside of them that he's leading them 
to true life, to real life, the life they were created for. And it isn't a life where they're labeled by the worst things they do. It's, it's not a life where they're known by some sinful occupation that their neighbors pass judgment on. And, and they're not going to be defined by their ability to impress all of the other people who are really good at following all the rules and regulations of religion. Jesus says, I come for people who look at their old way of life And they see the difference between that and real life, true life, and they they walk away from it. They give up all of the things that used to matter to them the most, and they, they understand that what they need more than anything else is a relationship with God that forgives them, that transforms them, that changes them, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of all the other people in their lives. When you have that kind of offer and you realize that's the offer, Jesus says that they're the ones who can see that you'd be crazy to pass it up. I didn't come for people who think they're they're already doing pretty well on their own. I came for people who have come to the end of themselves and they realize their only hope going to be found in me. Now he uses this phrase, right? Go and learn what this means. I I want mercy and not sacrifice. There are only a couple of times in Matthew's gospel where he commissions people to go. The one we tend to talk about a lot in church is the one that happens right at the end of the story, right at the end of, of Matthew's gospel. We call it the great commission. Go, right? And, and make disciples, people in every nation, teaching them, you know, my way of life, baptizing them into, into my way of moving through the world. Go and do that. And there's reasons why when we listen to the words of the Great Commission, we're, we're called towards something that, that feels like we're caught up in this, this worldwide, world-saving, world-changing mission, and we, we want to be a part of that. At least I know I do. But it's this It's this commission that takes place in Matthew chapter 9 that is a little bit more difficult for me to, first of all, notice that it is the same kind of commission. But it's also also challenging in a way that I I find hits me in in a deeper place than just the idea of go and make disciples, go and reach people, go and and share my story. That's, That's all... That's all well and good, but I think what Matthew wants us to understand is that if we try to carry out the Great Commission without learning this first, we're going to make a mess of things. Go and learn what this means. God says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. Now, there's one other place where this same phrase shows up in Matthew's gospel, and it's just a couple of chapter's over, and so I want us to read it together now. And I want you to notice how in both stories, people who find it easy to practice and follow all the the rules and regulations of religion are passing judgment on people who they think aren't. Matthew 12, verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the, the wheat fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry. Now, this isn't, there's nothing on TV and you've already had lunch, but it's that time between lunch and dinner, and you could eat a little something hungry. They're hungry. 
that they need to eat. So they were picking heads of wheat and eating them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath law, because just picking the heads of wheat is working, right? And they're not supposed to work. Verse 3, But he said to them, Now haven't you read, aren't you guys like theologians and legal experts? I'm guessing you've read what David did when he and those with him were hungry. He went into God's house and broke the law by eating the bread of the presence, which only the priests were allowed to eat. Now he knows he's dealing with people who know their Bible, so he's going to use another example. Or, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple treat the Sabbath as any other day and are still innocent? But I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you'd known what this means, I want mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So you have this phrase again, right? I want mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus had some high expectations because it's just in Matthew 9 that he says, go and learn what this means. And by the time you get to Matthew 12, he says, if you had done what I said, if you had, had gone and learned the difference between mercy and religion, we wouldn't be having this conversation because you wouldn't be making this mistake, this confusion. Right, and in this extended version of the story, Jesus helps them understand what he means by saying, look, laws are, are given for the sake of people. People are not created to be really good at keeping laws. Laws can be helpful. They can be life-giving or they can be used to beat other people up. That's a misuse of my law. That's a misuse of my words. You should care more about people than you do about where you stand and being able to prove that you've got all the religious stuff worked out. Jesus is quoting here from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. It's a little bit longer, and I want us to look at it together for just a moment. I want you to show mercy, Hosea says, speaking for God. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. The prophets regularly have to remind God's people that the whole purpose of us gathering together and singing songs and praying and listening to some guy like me talk is to be made into people who remind others of our Heavenly Father. It's not to be better at quoting scripture or better at knowing song lyrics or better at saying, here's my attendance record. I'm, I'm always here no matter what. I'm always in this seat. I'm always in this place. And that's how people know that I'm committed. Jesus, in the same tradition of the Old Testament prophets, is trying to say religion is helpful as long as it, it creates a relationship between us and God that makes us more like God, that makes us more like Christ, that opens us up more and more to the Holy Spirit. But if religion is actually keeping us from becoming more like Jesus while convincing ourselves we're experts in Jesus, we got a problem. And we're the only people who can wake up enough 
to find some deliverance from it, not because we can deliver ourselves, but because if you think everything's going well, you're not going to look to be saved. You're not going to look to be rescued. That's, that's the key issue here is the Pharisees think that they have a good relationship with God because they're able to follow in God's religion. And Jesus says, no, you've actually used God's religion and it's taken you farther from God's heart. Do whatever you can to, to grow closer to God's heart. Of course, listening to God's word can help us do that. Of course, gathering together can help us do that. Of course, singing can help us do that. But it's not automatic. It's not foolproof. We need to make sure we understand what's at the heart of the matter. And for Matthew, there's a word for what's at the heart of the matter of every single thing we do. And that word is mercy. Jesus didn't come to show the church how to become an impressive religious institution filled with those who have it all figured out. He came to show the church how to become a people and a place where mercy and grace can always be found by those who need it most. By the way, you need it the most. I need it. I need it the most. I may have forgotten. I may have thought I'm so good at this, you know, open up the Bible and writing down the main point and then talking about it to people that I'm actually always faithfully practicing what I'm preaching, but I'm not. And because I'm not, guess what I need? More than anything else, when I come to this people and to this place, I need mercy. I need grace. And it's when I forget that, that I'm less merciful and I'm less gracious to anyone else around me. Religion that makes us less merciful and less gracious is against the heart of God. You're not here. I don't know how else to say this. I've been thinking all week how to say this. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not interested. You're not here to be a smarter Christian at the end of an hour and 15 minutes. You're here to be a better one. I'm not here to make you smarter. You're not here to make me smarter. We're here to be better. And for Jesus, that doesn't mean more impressive. It doesn't mean you've pulled everything together. It doesn't mean you're better at image management. It means that somewhere in your heart, you've been able to say this morning, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then in response to that, through something that we've sung together or we've said together or something that someone else is gonna say to you when this worship service is over, that in response to you confessing that you need mercy and grace, you find it, you encounter it, you feel it, and it changes you. See, when we're saved from unmerciful, ungracious behavior through mercy and grace, then we're not just the only ones who get saved in that moment. Everybody we're around gets to taste what it means to be saved. The world gets to experience what it means to be saved from trying to prove through our own efforts that we don't need the God who created us. Now, worship is the place where we profess once again that without the God who created us, we are nothing. And any goodness we have inside of us was placed there by him. And we're thankful for it. And so I want to say these names just one more time so we'll hear them. Carrie, Erica, Bob and Teeny, Carly and Ada, 
Gary and Becky, Ed and Jana, Mark and Jana, Todd and Carla, Bobby and Gail, Stephen and Pat, Dave, Danny and Kathy, Mark and Laura, JR and Kay, Guy and Robin, Mike and Martha. We need shepherds of our souls who, like Jesus, can show us what mercy looks like in everyday life. That's what we need. We may forget that and act like we need something else from you. But what we need the most from you is for your relationship with God to be founded on mercy so that we can have relationships with God that are built upon mercy. We need to learn what mercy sounds like. We need to learn what mercy looks like, feels like. We need to learn how to share it all the time with everyone. And I can tell you this at 43 years of age. I have a severely limited moral imagination when it comes to how to be mercy. I have narrow cookie cutter situations and responses that I think prove that even though I don't want to be forgiving, through clenched teeth, I'll pretend that I'm being forgiving. And even though I don't want to give somebody a second chance for the 43rd time, I'm going to. And even though I think that, that what this is really would just be simpler if we could focus on growth curves and income statements and things that we can put up on a wall and say, look at these great things we did for, for Jesus. You know what I want our mission and our vision to be? I want us to be more merciful next year than we are right now. That's who I want us to be. I want people in this town to know that if you're on a, a work team with me, if you're on a school team with me, if we, our kids are in sports together, if we happen to be working on something for our community together, you know that with me, you're always going to encounter the grace that God has given to me first. I have a severely limited moral imagination when it comes to what it means to be mercy everywhere I go and everything I say and every way I treat people. And I'm telling you, to anybody in this room, if I've ever talked to you or treated you in a way that made you feel smaller or less than or like you're not good enough or like your voice doesn't matter, I need to beg for your forgiveness and your mercy. I guess what I'm saying is I need you to share God's mercy with me. We need to share it with each other. And if we're going to lead one another anywhere, I want it to be farther and farther into grace and trust that God's grace is greater than anything else we could give the rest of our lives to. We're going to sing together now. And after this song, our time of of worship will, will be over. We're not going to have an extra shepherd's blessing because we had a great one already. I want us to be mercy and to be grace. And I want our leaders to be the people who show us what that means. Would you stand together?